Good morning, America. You are listening to Percolating Perspective. I'm your host, Gordon Michael Porter. We have a very exciting show for you today. We are going to step back in time and immerse you into the 1930s. And I am incredibly excited to bring this uh, to you today, the show. And I'm looking forward to your feedback. And with that, let's get started. It's May 7th, 1928. It's a Monday afternoon, sunny but chilly, as is opening day of baseball. In a small, warm apartment in the Bronx, your nose beckons you to the window to get a whiff of the coffee and popcorn coming from the stadium across the way. From the window, you hear the four-cylinder Fords humming carefully down the cobblestone street below, splashing through the puddles from the morning spring shower earlier that day. Occasionally, you hear the honk of a brass and rubber horn bidding a good day to the band of children playing in their wool suits, well-worn leather shoes, and a fresh new baseball mitt, and a white New York Yankees cap with black stripes. Quickly, you turn to the orange glow of the tubes in your Philco shortwave radio, turn the volume down, and stick your head out the window again. Faintly echoing through the white noise of the crowd and the crowd singing, buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks and the steel girders of the train trestle between your window and the infamous New York Yankee Stadium, you hear an eager, excited young man on a loudspeaker yelling out the starting lineup for the day. You're able to make out the most well-known names, at least, like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Pat Collins. With your head out the window, your attention is demanded back to the smell of coffee, separating itself from the popcorn. Just three doors down, the coffee smell is getting stronger and stronger and more irresistible. It's bold. It's warm. It has an earthy aroma that just draws you in with a Spanish zeal. That smell is a brand new coffee to you in 1928 that your children and your children's children will never know life without. Just down the street, an immigrant man fresh off of Ellis Island over in the river named Gregorio Bastello is grinding his first batch of coffee to be packaged in its beautiful, vibrant yellow and red tin. Today on Percolating Perspective, we enjoy Mr. Bastello's Cafe Bastello a New York City original that is as tasty as it is beautiful. Packaged with all the right ingredients, freshly ground South American coffee beans, and the eager love of a young immigrant making his way in the greatest country any man has ever known. And let me tell you, Cafe Bastello, it takes you back in time. It is a vintage-tasting coffee and the only way I can describe it is if you can imagine yourself sitting at a oak bar top in a Woolworths in New York City drinking a cup of, drinking a cup of coffee that's the smell the taste that I get from Cafe Bastillo treat yourself to a bag you can get it at Walmart you can get it at Publix you can really get it I think anywhere you can get it at, at Aldi uh, in fact the bag that I have here I got at Aldi and, you know, they say that, you know, smell is probably the strongest trigger of memory. Uh, and I think taste is right there with it. And obviously, I don't remember the 1920s. But I do think that this coffee can really make you long for the days 
a, a more simpler day when we weren't worried about quite so much. This coffee is well worth your time. And to be honest, it is slam-packed with caffeine, which is, that's a plus. And you can actually use this as an espresso as well. So you can pack it uh, as a puck in your espresso machine and make espresso with it. And I haven't tried that yet. Um, we're going to try that maybe uh, in another episode here uh, later on down the road. But uh, today we're just drinking it as a fresh ground drip and it does not disappoint. It is a wonderful cup of coffee. But back to 1928, across the country, all the way down in Texas. Let me get one more sip here. A man called Frank Hamer, the greatest Texas Ranger who ever lived, is working through what would be called eventually the Texas Bankers Association Reward Ring. Banks in Texas had had their fill of being robbed at gunpoint and decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands, placing a $5,000 reward for the head of a bank robber. The campaign, unfortunately, though, had seen unforeseen circumstances that Mr. Hamer began to try and resolve. Small-time petty criminals were now being framed by the bigger, smarter, uh, more intelligent criminals uh, for bank robbery, while the more intelligent bank robbers would swoop in and then collect their $5,000 reward knowing full well that they were the ones that actually robbed the bank. <sighs> Frank loved his work, Frank Hamer did, but little did he know that in just a few years, his already legendary status as a Texas Ranger would be cemented in the annals of history forever. On a sultry Texas summer night in 1934, your face will light up again with the orange tube glow of your Philco radio, similar to how it did in the Bronx, right across the road from Yankee Stadium. With the weight of the Great Depression on your shoulders, the radio helps to drown out the lack of faith that joblessness brings. The radio whines and purrs as you turn the knob through the dial, looking for a good clear station, but through the hiss and the static, you hear that another police officer has just been shot and killed by Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow just a few counties over in Grapevine, Texas. You listen intently as the broadcaster says that on Easter Sunday, a young policeman and a routine traffic stop was gunned down with a sawed-off shotgun by 23-year-old, 80-pound, soaking wet, redhead Bonnie Parker. The broadcaster, steady in voice and clearly spoken in his transatlantic accent, similar to your host, Gordon Michael Porter, states that Bonnie realized the young officer wasn't dead and that she walked over to the suffering officer, kicked his shoulder to roll him onto his back, and fired the sawn-off 12-gauge directly into his face, putting his life to an end. The broadcaster's voice seems somewhat shaken when he reads that a witness to the shooting about 100 yards away in his farm heard Bonnie laughing as she sauntered back to Clyde in their stolen 1934 Ford V8. He goes on to say that just a few days later, the wife and children of the slain officer were thrown into poverty themselves. Bonnie and Clyde, now often heralded as modern-day Robin Hoods, sticking it to the man and saving the poor, put a young middle-class family, I'm sorry, a young middle-class man in a grave for no apparent reason, sending an already struggling family to the breadline. Several counties over, after dozens of failed attempts by local police, state police, the FBI. In desperation, the governor of Texas over in Dallas 
who pulled the plug on the Texas Ranger Department originally, is forced to bring in what she knows to be the most seasoned and successful lawkeeper Texas would ever see, Frank Hamer. The governor, Ma Ferguson, as she would be called, is clear that Hamer, accompanied by his good buddy and former Texas Ranger himself, Manny Galt, are not to leave the jurisdiction of Texas, but that they are given full authority to hunt down and kill Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow on first sighting. Hamer and Galt load dozens of fully automatic rifles, revolvers, shotguns, and a couple of boxes of ammunition into the back of their 1934 Ford, being careful not to scuff the fresh interior that had just been installed by the factory in Detroit. They turn on the radio and listen for every single news report that comes through the single speaker and the cold dash as they speed through the Texas prairies, listening for the latest sighting of Bonnie and Clyde. With their map sprawled over the cabin, they have drawn lines, circles, and made notes all over the map of every movement in hoping of finding a pattern. Eventually, a pattern is detected, and the ranger duo set their course for the Devil's Back Porch, a poverty-stricken suburb of Dallas where Bonnie and Clyde call home. Hamer and Galt are staked out just a few hundred yards away from the Barrow household, Clyde Barrow's parents' house, and they wait and they wait, and they wait. But no one ever comes. How could they possibly have been wrong? They tracked every movement, every murder, every sighting, and all of them pointed here. 23-year-old gangsters Bonnie and Clyde caught the scent of someone hunting them down, and Frank Hamer knows it. After all, you don't just lose animals like Barrow and Parker after 50 years of hunting Mexican drug cartels along the southern border. But... Back to the drawing board. Frank finally discovers that they were actually going home, but to his surprise, not the Parker or Barrow home in the Devil's Back Porch. The evil pair had shredded rubber down the hot Texas pavement with the sunset in the rearview mirror as they blazed a trail to a small town north of Arcadia, Louisiana, where a member of the Barrow gang's father lived to escape the fate they knew awaited them with the Texas Ranger Frank Hamer hot on their heels. With the help of a former sharpshooter Marine turned sheriff deputy in Louisiana uh, by the name of Prentice Oakley, Hamer and Galt work out the details for an ambush on the road leading to the Barrow gang member's father's home. The father helped the Rangers and staged a pickup truck breakdown in the middle of the dirt road. Hamer, Galt, and Prentice Oakley and several others waited patiently in the woods on the side of the dirt road, locked, loaded, and their hearts racing with adrenaline. Eventually, they hear the roar of a tan 1934 Henry Ford V8 sedan ripping through the dust of the clay dirt road. The men ready their guns, take deep breaths, and the uh, the sedan comes to a stop to check on the pickup truck. Frank Hamer jumps out of the woods and dashes in front of the car in a daring move of bravery and shouts, Hands up! You are under arrest! Prentice Oakley, the former Marine, sees Bonnie quickly reaching for her sawed-off shotgun, and before Bonnie or Clyde move more than a single muscle, Prentice presses his cheek against the wooden stock of his rifle and pulls the trigger in less than a second. The hot lead zips through Prentice's barrel, making a clean pass through both Bonnie and Clyde's temple, killing them instantly. Clyde's foot then slips off the clutch of the car, causing it to motor slowly forward towards the left side of the road into the ditch. 
In a sheer moment of adrenaline and fear that the demonic pair had somehow managed to survive the speed of the former Marine, Frank Hamer, Manny Galt, and then the others alongside them unload 130 rounds of ammunition through the body of the car with a documented 30 rounds going through the bodies of the now-deceased terror of the Great Depression. By the end of their short lives, it is reported that Bonnie and Clyde had killed 13 people at least, nine of which being police officers. Let's throw out the grounds here. And what do I mean by that? Something so delicious and beautiful as America can only come through heat, pressure, and being forced through a filter to remove its impurities. On this podcast, we are brewing pure American culture. We must take the impurities and toss them out through heat, pressure, and filtration. One of the most important features of American culture uh, that here in 2023 we're watching erode so quickly is justice. Without law and the enforcement of the law, a society rapidly devolving into chaos is is to be expected. The United States of America is a country of laws and a country of justice. America views every man as equal before the law, president or pauper. Gregorio Bastello, grinding the coffee that we now drink uh, on this show today, came to America because he knew that while if he didn't work, he wouldn't eat, justice would be served if wrong was done, even though he was not a native. Justice, as many other parts of our foundation, is quickly becoming perverted. In fact, I would argue that it has already become extremely perverted and unrecognizable. Today, justice means destroying an entire culture because of the mistakes of our past. Justice now means that anyone who doesn't look or think like me should be silenced, depersoned, or killed. Justice now means that even if a person of a certain skin color commits a heinous crime, if true justice is carried out by a white man, then civilization should burn. Justice now is completely based on emotion, feeling, and a fleeting individual experience. Make no mistake, that is not justice. That is evil. True justice is punishing those who break the law, no matter their age, skin color, background, individual experience. True justice results in crime being deterred because everyone knows the punishment and doesn't want the punishment. That's why, you know, as, as ugly as it was, hanging by the neck until dead def- deterred a lot of crime. In fact, if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, the reason he wrote the book that he wrote about America and the reason he came to America in the first place, he was a Frenchman. And France was having a real problem with crime, and he read in the newspaper that the United States, excuse me, he read in the paper that the United States uh, and New York City in particular was having a crime wave where they experienced eight murders over the past five years. Eight murders in five years. And at the time, the New York City uh, papers would call that a crime wave. Alexis de Tocqueville had to find out what was going on. And what he would later find out is that crime was relatively low because justice was carried out. In fact, not even relatively low. It was really low. Really low. 
True justice is forgiveness of wrongdoing, but punishment for wrongdoing. True justice is bringing evil, like the Barrow Gang, to its knees. True justice is blind, it's unemotional, and it's balanced. If you're ever in a courthouse or if you ever see the seal of the Supreme Court of the United States, you'll see a woman blindfolded with a scale in her hand. That is Lady Justice. She is blind, she is unemotional, and she is balanced. And she will find the answer. Frank Hamer, Manny Galt, and all the Texas Rangers, past and present, were steeped in justice and are steeped in justice and know it well. Although I don't know about Chuck Norris. I would think that he's probably steeped in morality. At least he seems like a pretty nice guy. Knows karate. But if the law was broken in, in Frank Hamer or Manny Galt's day, it didn't matter who they were. They were going to pay the consequences, or at the very least be brought before a jury where justice would be determined. Today, while you're out and about, thank a police officer. Buy him a cup of coffee. Tell him you appreciate what he does. Tell him how proud you are that there are still men who are willing to put on the badge and bring those who do our society harm to justice. And, you know, just another note, a charge here to you. The most effective way to bring justice back to our country is to teach your children justice. If they do wrong, bring the matter to justice. Don't let emotion, feeling, individual experience rule your home and push your child into the modern definition of justice, which is, I don't want to be punished, therefore I shouldn't be punished. And you as a parent have to make it clear to them that wrong is wrong, and wrong will always be punished. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And those who burn our cities and destroy our country and try to rip our culture to pieces, their sin will find them out, whether that's in this life or the next. My flesh and my, uh, my spirit and my hope for America hopes that their sin finds them out in the next five minutes. But usually what I want doesn't happen. But I'll keep praying for it anyway. If your children do wrong, bring the matter to justice and be consistent with it. They will have a firm understanding of what justice actually means. Teach your children justice. Flip on an old Western. And, I, and I'm not joking here. I know, I know, um, you know movies, TV, all that can be taken as a really negative thing and a bad thing and can you know, harm your kids and all, and all that. If there's one Western that I can encourage you to go watch, uh, would be Bonanza. And most people probably don't like Bonanza because it's hokey, it's what the grandmother watched, and it is what my grandmother watched, and that's actually why I love it. But Bonanza, you always know that justice is going to be done in every episode. Every episode, there's somebody trying to trespass onto the Ponderosa Ranch and take over the Ponderosa or steal uh, the Cartwright family's wealth and do them wrong, do them harm, you know, hurt Little Joe or Hoss. But every episode, justice is carried out. And usually what happens is the person that is doing the family harm, the Cartwright family harm, is arrested. And Ben Cartwright and the Cartwright family forgive the man or the woman that has done the wrong. And they're still punished. Forgiveness and punishment are not, uh, are not mutually exclusive. 
do not let feeling an individual experience rule over you. Again, American culture used to, this used to be a core of our American culture was justice. Again, you know, with Bonanza, it wasn't just Bonanza. You know, go watch some John Wayne movies. One of my absolute favorites, and I think we're going to do a movie review on this. Uh, I think our next podcast will do this. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. If you've never seen that movie, I, you know what, I'm going to make this your homework assignment. Next week, we are going to talk about The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And in the meantime, I want you to watch that. I think you can get it on Amazon. Go on, if you have Roku or something similar, search that movie. If it costs you $4, it costs you $4. It's well worth your time. But it's John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, uh, and and um, Lee Marvin, who, if you've ever watched The Dirty Dozen, he is the the major who is tasked with you know, banding the dirty dozen together and, and, you know, the rest is history. But Lee Marvin is the bad guy. He's the black hat with a gun on each hip and he is looking to bring havoc to the town. But John Wayne ain't having it, nor is Jimmy Stewart, but in two different, um, capacities. John Wayne, uh, you know, in his normal capacity is brute force, a gun on each hip, and a white hat ready to face the devil. Jimmy Stewart is too, but he is a lawyer from the East Coast, and he's come to Arizona to help bring education and justice to the American West by way of jury and by way of law. So John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart band together through, they do have their bouts between each other, but at the end of the day, they are there to fight evil and beat Lee Marvin, who is Liberty Valance, and bring him to justice. Watch these movies with your kids. It's so important. I can't tell you how important this is. Justice is is one of the it, it's one of the most important parts of our society. Without without justice, without law, we have no country. That's why the border wall is so important. It's justice. It's the law. It must be carried out. And in order for us to get past this, and in order for us to to heal our country, you have to teach your children. You have to teach your your children. Your children cannot grow up without, you know, with their idea of justice being a peace symbol and a burning American flag and a Black Lives Matter banner. That cannot be what they believe to be justice. And if you leave it up to the public school system or or you know Disney, that is what they're going to be getting. You cannot let that happen. You have to teach your kids what the American justice, truth, justice in the American way, what that looks like. America, I love you. You make me happy when skies are gray. I love to talk about you. I love to meet your people, and I love your justice when it is carried out. I ask God to bless you, her families, and her laws every day. May justice be done today to, to those who seek to do America harm. Until next week, take care, America.